I'm thinking about a couple of clients. I have one right now that's that's actually going through it. It took her a while to become a principal. She did not make it past the first two interviews. When we dug deep into like what what's going on in these interviews that you can't get past this piece. And finally, like maybe like the fifth session, she says, I don't know if I deserve to be there. The imposter syndrome I feel like it, it's like the, the, the two different personalities on your shoulder, the one that you have one cheering you on and the other one that's saying, what are you talking about? You can't do that. Like, get, get, get in your own place kind of thing or, you know, get real with yourself. The imposter syndrome can be dealt with if you have people who believe in you, if you have people who constantly remind you of your gifts and remind you of your talents and also not just tell you, but like show you. Look what you just did. Look what you just said. Look at that thing that you did that created this crazy change. You did that. Welcome to the Introspective Leader Podcast, where Rachel and I take a deep dive into the ideas and practices that will help you become a more effective and respected organizational leader. I am Stuart, and as a retired Army Senior Non-Commissioned Officer, a former hospital executive, and a management instructor, I have been leading and managing for almost 30 years and teaching it for over 15. Rachel is an Army officer and a healthcare practitioner, and while she is relatively new to the gig, she is one of the most talented young leaders I have come across. So thank you for joining us, and we will see you on the other side. Hello folks, Stuart here. Before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to inform you, our listener, that we now have an option through our podcast platform, Buzzsprout, that allows you, if you wish, to help support our show through a small monthly donation. Although there have been opportunities, we have chosen not to add external sponsors to our episodes because we would like to keep the experience as uninterrupted as possible. We chose instead to allow any of you who gain value from our content and want to see it continue to help us through this voluntary monthly donation. We have set up three donation tiers, with one of them earning you a free Introspective Leader Podcast t-shirt and have included the link to the donation page in the show notes for each episode. To be clear, these donations are currently our only form of monetization and every cent we earn goes towards the cost of running the podcast. That's it. Thank you, and back to the show. Once again, hello, everyone. I'm Stuart. And I'm Rachel. And we are excited about today's guest. Not only is she a successful educator, leader, and leadership coach, all of which our regular listeners know Rachel and I have particular passions for, as a black woman who has held high-level positions of leadership herself and who has spent many hours coaching and consulting other leaders of color, she brings a perspective to this podcast that Rachel and I just cannot provide. Natalie Caton is a 2018 Neubauer Fellow who currently serves as an executive leadership coach in education for the School District of Philadelphia, providing one-on-one coaching and professional development for school leaders. She has been an educator since 2002, has served as a school leader for over 20 years, and holds two masters from Bank Street College and Columbia University. Under Natalie's leadership, Her schools grew rapidly in student enrollment, achieved major improvements in math and reading proficiency on the Pennsylvania state exams, and have been recognized for significant positive changes in their educational and workplace culture. 
Additionally, she worked with Paul Bambrick Santoya, Chief Schools Officer of Uncommon Schools in New York, on his book, Let's Get Better Faster. And with that, Natalie, welcome to the Introspective Leader Podcast, where, as we like to say, the complexities of leadership are met with an equal complexity of thought. Well, hello. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, thank you for being here, Natalie. I I meant it what we said at the get up. We're very excited about the conversation I think we're going to have in this episode. And I know I'm speaking for myself, but I think Rachel would very much agree too. I agree for sure. Well, let's not diddle down around because there's a lot of things we want to cover and listeners stick with us because we got a lot of good stuff in this episode. But before we get into specific questions, I would like to hear from you, Natalie, the path that you took to becoming an educational leader. And then, and I know this is a stack question, that's a little bit of inside joke. And then eventually a leadership coach for other educational leaders. I would, I never thought I'd actually be a leadership coach and, you know, starting a little bit backwards, I'll start where I am now and I'll, and I'll go backwards to where I started. It's one of the best places I've landed as a leadership coach just having a chance to seriously like be side by side with other leaders that are doing the work, that are on the front line, that are making really hard decisions that impact the lives of children every single day, and actually being able to just be part of the process by supporting their inner knowledge and helping them bring it out front. And that's kind of what's happening in the work that we do um, as leadership coaches at you know in um in our district and that I do also with my clients. But you know, leadership is one of those things I think that hap- just happened. Like, you know, I was as a happy-go-lucky teacher. I was teaching, you know, second grade. I taught third grade, taught fourth grade. And it just kind of crept in. It was one of those things like, hey, Natalie, can you support this person with this thing? Hey, would you mind running this small group, you know, during lunch to help teachers figure out that thing? And then, you know, so supporting one or two people became supporting an entire grade, which became supporting an entire kind of like, you know, area of, I'm thinking like, you know, reading in particular, which is what I got my master's in at at Columbia University was as a reading specialist. And so then I started doing like professional developments and then professional developments turned into like, hey, maybe you should be the assistant principal. And, and, you know, it just kind of like, and all of a sudden I'm like, wait a minute, how did I become a principal? But I think, you know, my leadership path really is people that saw something in me that I did not see in myself. And it was just really being lucky to be around to be around people who would push me and say, Hey, you could do this. I'm like, really, I can't, I, I didn't, you know, you're already doing it. Really. I am. I didn't even know I was doing it and taking a leap of faith coming, you know, growing out of my comfort zone and stepping into a spotlight where more eyes and ears were on me. And I, you know, and actually enjoying it. So, but yeah, I think my leadership path happens because people saw things in me that I did not see in myself. So I'm grateful for those people. <laughs> That's so funny you said that because, well, not so funny. I think it's common that you hear that. But our last guest, literally our last guest we just introduced, had someone find something Mm -hmm. in him that he didn't see as a leader. And that sort of set him off to his uh, management career. And then he also became a leadership coach. But also on that, and I, Rachel and I have talked a lot, and I'm one of those. I'm one of those still few people out there now that I still I don't think everybody can become a leader. I think it's minority of people. Now, when again, when we talk about leadership here, we're talking at 
essentially an organizational level, and you could even take it up to the political level if you want, but specifically in the organizational level, I don't think most people do have the abilities, the skills, all of it, because you need so such a, a, a wide-ranging arsenal. I don't think most people have it. Right. And I don't think most people want it at the end of the day either. Like you were saying, Natalie, you're like, I don't know. I was just minding my own business. And I was, I was teaching, I was teaching kids how to read. Next thing I know, I'm running a school. What the hell happened? You know, and I know Rachel has a very similar experience Mm -hmm. uh, at a little lower scale. And I know because I was one of the ones that pushed Mm -hmm. Rachel into leadership positions. Mm Because by that time, I had been leading, what, I guess, 20-something 20, 20 years, right, yeah. in management <laughs> positions. And you, by now, probably know Natalie, too, that when you see someone that has that, oh yeah, I don't want to call it natural ability, because that sounds like you're just born with it or you're not, because that's not necessarily how uh-huh. I feel. But bottom line, I saw immediately something in Rachel that I couldn't even quite, uh, really quite defined at that moment but quickly saw that on her and just kept pushing her that way. Do you agree with that, Rachel? No, I agree. It was interesting. I have two, I have two thoughts about what you were saying there, Natalie. So first of all, that, yes, I do definitely think Stuart was somebody who it was an interesting situation because, you know, for our listeners, military, I was like assigned to be in charge, but there's a difference between being assigned to be in charge and being a leader. Right. And so yeah. I think Stuart is what helped me. He is who helped me actually develop the ability to be a actual good leader, um, or at least in some capacity. So yeah, I know I was definitely thinking of Stuart when you were talking about (laughs) being grateful for people who came alongside, not came alongside, but identified something in you that you didn't necessarily realize was there yourself. And I think the the other thing I was thinking, and, and it's one of our bigger construct of talking about leadership in women is this idea of, and I don't, I don't know what your thoughts are on this, but my sort of a half baked thought, but I'm curious I feel I feel like often women have a harder time realizing that they're actually in positions of leadership than men do. <laughs> and I, you know, my my thought process is potentially, and I again, this is kind of half-baked. I don't know that there's much research on this, but there probably is. I, I wonder if it's more of a just women are just when they start those first few positions of leadership, even if it's informal, it's like you were talking about. It's Somebody's identified in something you something in you that they, they know, hey, she would be great for this project or this group to help other people. Let me ask her to do it. And then something in you is like, okay, yeah, I'm gonna help, I'm gonna help out here. Whereas I think a lot of times, and again, broad generalizations, but I think a lot of times some men or more men, because some women do this too, but more men tend to take the road of, I'm going to be a leader. Like I'm going to be a leader and I'm going to figure out how to make that happen. Right. (laughs) And I think more women tend to just quote unquote, fall into it. Um, I'd be curious about what your thoughts were were, are on that, Natalie. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's interesting. I think I agree. I do. I do think, you know, men are, I think are more, um, I don't know if the word is like, I don't know if it's like grounded in the idea of like, I'm going to take this and I'm going to run with it and I'm going to mm-hmm. do something while women are like, let me figure this out a little bit. Let me feel mm-hmm. it. I think this is right for me. Let me see, you know, like, you know, we're, we're, I think we think a little more mm-hmm. <laughs> to say not to be like in the negative way, but I think we put more thought into certain things. Like, 
Um, and that could be a good thing or a bad thing. And mm-hmm. I think they're like, they're just going to go for it. And sometimes I wish I had a little bit, you know, more gumption like that yeah. <laughs> yeah. Go for it because, Hey, if it works out, what a thing. And if it doesn't, Hey, I'll try something else. But I think mm-hmm. we're just a little bit more cautious, which, mm-hmm. um, sometimes gets, sometimes we get in our own way when it comes to that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, from the man perspective, I'll, I'll just say it bluntly. We get signals throughout our entire life that tells us we should behave that mm-hmm. way, right? Mm-hmm. Of course, there has never been a signal to me that I shouldn't stand up and take charge mm-hmm. yeah. unless I do it and, and I prove I'm incompetent. And then everybody mm-hmm. sit back down. But <laughs> right, right, right. if they see a tall six foot four white guy stand up and say he's going to take charge, mm-hmm. well, People that's been, ha- that's been, yeah. that's that's been that's happening been, for centuries. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> we're trained. We're trained to listen to that tall white man, right? Like, hey, right. I yes. everybody it, shut up and listen. Yeah. Exactly. And I, I should I should say, I do not when I was talking about the differences, I do not think these are inborn differences. I think these are socialized differences. Yeah, I think women are socialized to be more quiet and more withdrawn. And I'm not gonna lead, I'm just gonna help people. But sometimes that is leading. <laughs> Um, at a certain level it is. Um, and then continuing to work on that. But anyway, sorry, I cut you off, Stuart. Go ahead. No, no. I, and and I know you you and I think the same way on this, Rachel, we've talked and, Mm -hmm. and, uh, but yeah, I had a very interesting conversation about this exact thing with Dr. Patricia Suggs. It's one of the episodes we just released a few weeks ago. Rachel didn't get to make Mm -hmm. that one. She was awesome. Anyway, we had this whole discussion about when society is sending you signals on my side to step up, take charge, be a man, be assertive. And that's expected of me. And everybody else knows that's sort of expected of me when I do it. It, it seemed, it seems natural, right? Of course mm-hmm. he's being take charge. Of course he's being a little dominant. Oh, don't get your feelings hurt. That's just how he mm-hmm. talks. You know, he's this big, tall white dude. Whereas on the other side, society is constantly telling women, and I would say even more so women of color, mm-hmm. that that is not your role. You're not getting yours. The signals are to be supportive, to be collaborative, to mm-hmm. do all that other stuff. That when Dr. Suggs and I talked, and I've said this many times, that's why when I think women, not that all women are good leaders, there's a lot, I've had several crummy ones, but I think when a woman leader is a good leader, she sets the bar very high to her male counterparts. So what I'm, that's a very convoluted way of saying, I think when women are good leaders, they're very good leaders. Mm-hmm. And because they have to build up these the supporting behaviors that a lot of men don't. So mm-hmm. Rachel and Natalie, let's say you have to earn that trust. You mm-hmm. have to, to yes. go through that the hard way. I basically just don't have to F it up. Now I yeah. know we're doing yeah. big, broad yeah. paintbrushes yeah. here. Right. And I think yeah. society's changing some we're, now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is, it is, but for decades and decades and still in a lot of corporations and a lot of the powerful, powerful mm-hmm. organizations, it's still a fact like that, right? Mm-hmm. All I have to worry about is don't F it up, right? Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. guys just got to worry about getting into the game, mm-hmm. right? We have to prove ourselves. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And I will say sometimes I have a reverse feeling when sometimes I'm in a group and I start talking, I feel that people, they, 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 like really zone in on me. Right. And, mm-hmm. I, and I feel like they're giving a lot. I, I start to go, Oh my God, 
it's happening again. People think I have something really super special to say, <laughs> and I, I they're going to be severely disappointed when they find out. So we're going to talk about this later, but my own little version of imposter syndrome, but some of it is not imposter syndrome. So sometimes I'm like, I am totally faking this and everybody is turning to me again, got off on there, but anybody either one of you want to add anything else on that because i think that was a good way to start with it and it's going to lead to something else we're going to talk about a little bit mm -hmm. later is imposter syndrome and how how it impacts different demographics differently possibly but y'all have anything to finalize that one up I, i'm glad we got started right right off on that so mm -hmm. yeah but, i mean i think for me personally i think you know yes it was important for others i think to see in me and to and to bring out in me what I didn't know um, that I was naturally showing, supposedly, right? Because, you know, especially, you know, coming from or having immigrant parents, I myself as an, as an immigrant, you know, we're taught to basically, you know, come to this country, keep your head down, get your education, you know, and, you know, get a profession. You don't have to love it. Get a profession and do well by, you know, your community, be a good citizen, pay your bills, you know, just, but basically keep your head down and do what's right and just be grateful to be in this country. To be a leader is to almost speak out of turn, right? And it's to, it almost goes against kind of like the way I was brought up. And so there are times when I tell my mom, hey, I'm going to go do this professional development or, you know, I'm actually presenting an um, ASCD conference in in, um, in April and they're like, really? Like, why do you want to do that? Like, you know, you, you're kind of in a, you know, you're in a comfy spot, like just kind of stay there, you know? And I'm just like, you know, I'm, I'm loving what I'm doing. And yes, it's different. And it's taken me outside of my comfort zone, but I'm learning a lot about myself and what I can, what I can offer to, you know, how I can support others. And I don't think I'd be able to do that. If someone said you have a voice and you should share that voice, or you have a talent, you should share that talent. and you know, my love of education came from the fact that as a young kid, English being my second language, I walked into a school where I was totally welcomed, could have been a totally different experience. And I always said to myself, I was, as I was growing up, I want to create spaces like that for other English language speaking children. And that's how I fell in love with, with becoming a teacher. My parents would have rather me become a lawyer or a doctor. And that's what immigrants, a lot of immigrants want for their children, you know, like, um, but I walked, I walked into education. So I'm happy that I did. But I did it because of the way I was treated as a, as a student. And I wanted to make sure I could replicate and duplicate that for other immigrant children. But and make sure they understand that they too have a voice and they too have a, a choice, you know, in this country. So yeah, that's, that's my little spiel. And I had a buddy years back that had made it. He was in it. He, he was a first generation, right? Am I getting that right? I'm showing. Yeah, so, I'm he, okay, gotcha. So he was born in the United States, but his parents, and he said something very similar to that. Basically in his family, what like they were tickled. I guess they had a little lower expectations than maybe your family, but they were tickled peak that he joined the military because it's secure. It's a way to show that, he is an American, you know, and it was something that because, and I get that. I, I, I just moved from Washington to Florida and I feel <laughs> like an immigrant right now. I can imagine. And they are almost like two different countries, quite frankly, moving from Washington <laughs> state to Florida. Yeah, <laughs> so I, <would> say. <laughs> so I, I can relate to it on a very, very infinitesimal level. So I can imagine how someone could feel that security probably becomes the number one most important exactly. thing, right? Mm -hmm. 
is be insecure. Don't lose what we risked leaving mm -hmm. our family, our culture, everything we know that gives us identity and move to this other country. Absolutely. Don't screw it up by Don't doing something that's not, that's not secure. Get mm -hmm. that, get mm -hmm. that law degree, get that doctor, but e even education, nice, secure job. You go in yeah, is that all? Is that, is that sound right, Natalie? And I don't think I'm. I might not be first generation. I think my brother is first generation because I was not born in this country, but I was first to go to college. And gotcha, 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 gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. One of the things that you had mentioned in one of our communications together that that really caught my eye, and I never really thought before because I'd never gotten into education like that. I, I have taught at the college level, but not into public education. You had said something like. While educational leaders have the responsibilities akin to for-profit business managers, they do not get the same respect, trust, or autonomy. Do you mind expanding on that a little bit, Natalie? Yeah, I mean, just experiencing it as a leader that sat in that seat, but also experiencing it now even more as someone sitting beside leaders, watching them make, you know, watching them go through what they go through. But I think what I meant by that comment was, you know. Our children, our community, our families basically are, that's our customer service right there. Like that is the people, those are the people that we need to cater to, to make sure, you know, um, what's happening in our four walls and our buildings um, meets the requirements and I say the expectations of the families. But yet, if you think about what's limiting sometimes the resources, right, which gets in the way, you know, for-profit companies have, you know, millions of dollars or they have places they can tap. The other piece, too, is we don't get to spend the money the way we want to spend our money, right? Is there are things that you have to get these books and you have to get, you know, this professional development must come in at this time or, you know, we have to put money aside for this thing. So, like, although there is a budget that we do, we get to manipulate, but we have to manip manipulate it within, I would say, with, with, it, with some guardrails, if that makes any sense. You know, for like when I was a principal, I wanted to hire a coach. I went, I had to. I had to do some really hard things like to get a coach, like write up, you know, what's the point and who is this person? How are they going to support you? How does this impact student? Like I had to basically write like a dissertation. It felt like just to get approved for this person to come work with, not just myself, my team and my teachers, um, which was one of the best experiences that we ever had. But I think if I was just a CEO of a company, I could just kind of like search for, you know, Google someone who I think was great. And then they'd come in and we'd write a contract and then we would see the return on investment based on how people were behaving and, you know, how people were, inter you know, interacting or team culture, whatever. But, you know, as an educator, there are so many boxes to check before we can spend a dollar. I mean, we can't, I mean, I know in our school, we can't even have petty cash anymore, you know, because everything is so tight. But even bigger than that, I think, you know, we're doing, we're doing really, really uh, kind of like deep work. Like we're, you know, we're in charge of, I want to say, like, I keep using the word impacted, but we're in charge of helping little people understand so many things about, like, who they are, what they want to do, who they want to be, why coming to this place is important every, you know, every, why this coming to this place every day is important. And then, so that, that's one bucket. And there's another bucket where you have to deal with the people who actually do the teaching. So you have to help them realize, like, what is their passion? What is their why? Why do you show up every day to teach these children? to help them become who they want to be. 
And how do I keep you motivated to do this work every single day? So that way the, the children in this building and your classroom get the best of you every single day. How do I make sure you're not calling out just to call out? How do I make sure you love every child in this classroom, regardless of what they look like, sound like, right? Like there's so many moving pieces that a principal has to think about. And then you have to think, and then I heard one of my superintendents, um, Dr. Bill Hyde, he said to me one time, he's like, Natalie, you were the mayor of your community. Like, you know, of, and so I'm also dealing with the politicians and I'm dealing with the parents and I'm dealing with, you know, um, I'm dealing with the, with the, with the local business next door who don't want kids in their, in their, you know, in their shop at a certain time because they're bothering the other customers or, you know, so it's like, you're dealing with all these different facets of leadership, but yet you can't control your dollar, you know, which is, which is interesting. And I say it in a way that's, that's, it's very broad because I, I do get to make some choices or I did get to make some choices, but I just think CEOs get treated, you know, in a way that they go to conferences and they, many of them have a credit card that they can take, you know, they could take potential clients out to lunch and dinner and, you know, we don't have that kind of piece. Like I can't take a parent out for just for drink, you know, just for like, you know, coffee. Hey, let's go meet for coffee and discuss this issue that your child is having. All those things can happen and they do happen. A lot of it happens coming out of our own pockets and also in our own time. But yeah, I, I just, I just think if we were treated in a way, and I think I think of it more in coaching than anything because of the position that I have now, if every educator was provided a leadership coach that provide that also did the work with the highest level of confidentiality to allow the leader to truly uncover who they are and who they want to be and what decisions they need to make in order to ensure children are getting what they need and adults are getting what they need and parents. I think it would make such a world of a difference. I I I see what my new leaders are getting now versus what leaders you know, received in the past about, you know, if they're brand new, like the kind of support that they received, it's a world of difference. A year one principal is trying to find out, is trying to find their voice. By the time they're in year two, they're like, you know what? Last year we spent the whole time, all of our sessions, all of our, you know, 25 sessions, just trying to figure out who I wanted to be. Now I know, and now I'm ready to go. While uh, the principal who doesn't have a leadership coach they're falling in their face constantly and they're and they're trying to figure out what's the best next move or who do I go to for help or how can I do this without my boss finding out that I totally screwed up, I don't get written up. They don't have an outlet. And I and so I just know that now coaching has become so prevalent, especially for CEOs and you know companies. I just wish it was more prevalent in the education sector. And I, I'm glad you hit on that, Natalie, because we were going to ask you about that later on. But let's, since we're on that topic, let's go to move into it. And specifically, what I wanted to ask you was, well, you you know, both of you and I are leadership uh, coaches now and consultants. So we definitely see the value in it. And I saw value in it, even when I was a leader myself. However, most leaders and most leaders of leaders still shy. I, it, it's, it, it's becoming more of a thing now. People were, are becoming more accepting of it uh, because of some of the value like you had just discussed, but it's still, people are still reticent. So here's the thing. I think most people realize 
if they had someone that was there to help them as a coach or a consultant to help them move along as a leader and someone that they jived with real well, they, they would probably be even better and perform better over the long run. But still, most of us still do not reach out for that help. I sort of wanted to hear your own take. Why do you think from your perspective, why that, why that is yeah, the way it is? That's a great, that's a great question. And you're right. I mean, coaching has such, you know, a, a negative connotation, especially, you know, in the work that I do, because it's like, if, because if you're getting coached, it's because you're not doing something right. And they're coming in here to help remedy something. But I think, in the, you know, in my line of work, there are two types of coaching. There's a transactional type of coaching that I think people get throughout the country. Like, you know, you can ask a principal on the street. Hey, do you have a coach? Yeah, I've had a coach. But it's very transactional, Stuart. It's not the type of coaching that you and I have learned through the Center for Executive Coaching, right? It's a transactional coach will walk in there with a list of to-dos, an agenda from, you know, that they created for themselves, somewhat judgy, right? Like, you know, walking through the halls and kind of making comments and saying, what's the action plan for this? And how are you going to, you know, how are you going to fix that? Why is that kid running in the streets or <laughs> not in the streets in the halls? He's <laughs> 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 not in the streets. <laughs> And, and so that person walks in with an agenda. However, I think when you have an executive coach that believes in an active inquiry process, your agenda is their agenda, right? When I walk into when I walk in to see one of my we call them coaches, right? When our, one of my coaches, my question is, what topic do you want to talk about today? You know, what problem do you want to try to solve today? I don't walk in there saying, hey, I noticed all these students in the hallway during transition. Let's fix that. That's not the way I walk in. And I think as leaders become more exposed to that type of coaching, where it's really about who do you, who are you in this position and who are you in this position in order to fix that problem or that issue? Who do you need to be? That's different because that really unpacks a whole lot of stuff. Because a lot of the times when it comes to leadership, there's a lot of fear packed in there. And, you know, people are sometimes afraid to tell other people what to do, even if they're in the principal seat. People love to be loved. You know, you're a leader and, you know, you're at the top. It's, it can get very lonely up there. You want your employees to love you. So you don't want to really tell them what to do. You don't really tell them what they're doing is wrong or it's hurtful or it's biased or, but, you know, you try to stay in this very safe lane. But in reality, you're not going to get the change that you really, really need to see achievement if you're not like your true authentic self. And you can only be your authentic self if you have someone there helping you, I think, unpack and figure out who that person really is and who is it that you really want to be as a leader. So I think that's the difference. I think there's a lot of transactional coaching happening throughout the country, but I do not think there's a lot of active inquiry happening where people are really figuring out that they have the answers within is trying to it's trying to give them the space and the time to put that stuff out there so they can deal with it and figure out wait a minute why did i not tell that teacher that that lesson sucked <laughs> why, why did i not you know tell that parent she should not talk to you know the child like that you know, like there are things that that limit us into doing the things that we should do to make situations better and to make better environments for children, but yet we don't do it. And a lot of the times it's either because of fear or because we don't know that we can do it or we can do it well. And I was just going to say, because I think you guys have both been kind of talking about the idea of, and I'm sure you're both thinking it, but just haven't said it explicitly, but y'all are thinking about the idea of, you know, coaching and the active inquiry coaching is 
helping people be the best leaders they can be. But I also think that from my experience, and I think both some of Stuart's experience, it can help people continue to be leaders at all. Because I think there are people who get in there, like you're talking about your principles. I'm sure there are many principles who the first three or five years, and that might be generous, are like that don't have good coaching, fall on their face and are like, forget this. I'm not doing this anymore. <laughs> um, and then they get so scared or so burnt out or so whatever that they're just like, yeah, I, they completely lose in my work, a lot of work we call self-efficacy, which is just the the belief that you have the ability to do things <laughs> essentially, or do things that you don't know how to do yet. And so their self-efficacy just completely deteriorates. And they're like, nope, I can't do anything. See, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's like, see, I am bad at this. I thought I was bad at this job, and now there's proof that I'm bad at this job. And so I think it's more than just helping people be the best leaders they can be. I think it's also helping people continue to be leaders. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. People have to really try to figure out what it means to be an educational leader right now when there's so much happening in the country. And again, not having the the amount of autonomy that other leaders have in different sectors I think that also drives the energy low to want to do the work. Yeah. When you were talking earlier, that word autonomy was coming to my mind because what I have pictured public education uh, in general as is the authorities very centralized, very centralized at the top. I I think there's a lot of similarities to the environment. Both Rachel and I Mm -hmm. have worked in most of our adult Mm -hmm. lives, which is a government system. Mm -hmm. It's very centralized, but also, on the teaching side, and I think also on the government size side in American culture, jobs like being a teacher or working for the government, it's just not given much cred, right? It's mm-hmm. just very looked down upon. Whereas you got other cultures, such as certain Asian cultures, Japan, oh, right. Korea, yeah. where teachers are like gods, right? Sort of like they were when I was young. You know, if I got in trouble, I didn't go home and tell my parents I got in trouble because I'm just going to get in trouble again. Right. right. You know? right. <laughs> <It was> like, <laughs> nowadays, I can imagine. There's no way I could be a teacher because I would always be uh, second guessing myself, right? Because if I don't say this exactly the right way, or I don't turn this the exactly certain way, it's going to get from that child to that, to that parent or from another child that wasn't even really in the conversation to a parent, then that, right. Am I, am I being a conspiracy theorist here? Or is that sort of what it's like? I mean, the articles I read about education now is what makes me think that, but you know. Yeah. I mean, there's just, and I would love to hear, you know, Rachel's point of this too. There just seems to be less value put on it because, you know, living in a capitalist you know society in our country, if you can make money, and you don't need the education, then you don't need the education. New generations are finding different ways to find meaning in their mm-hmm. lives. Like, you know, because before it was mm-hmm. go to school, go to college, get a good job, have a family, provide for your family, you know, and then kind of like live the American dream, right? Mm-hmm. The American dream now no longer has to go through an education path. Mm-hmm. And so therefore the value of education, unfortunately, is being diminished because there are so many other ways now to to make a living and to make a I mean, to make a good living to make a better living than if you were to become a teacher. I mean, I know a teacher that quit a few weeks ago. She's like, "Forget this! I'm going to be a barista at Starbucks. Like, I can make you know just as much as a manager over there. So I'm out. You know." And I'm like, you know, so yeah. So the value I think has been has been diminished. 
I, I don't know. I think I think it's interesting that we are. I think we are seeing a shift in in what younger generations value when it comes to. I think it's. I think it's. From my perspective is it's more about just. And Sue and I have actually done a couple of podcast episodes about this, but I think the perspective is shifting towards. Should all of my personhood, I guess, or a big majority of my personhood and value come from my job? You know what I mean? And so I think that's that's the the more and more people are going, I'm working so I can feed myself and have a house. And and that is not all people by any means. Like, you know, I am at a job where I make more than teachers probably, but I could make more money if I did different jobs. But I love it. And I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna probably ever completely stop doing it because I love working with people and helping them figure out, you know, a way that a way of eating that works for them, right? That's just like I love doing that. But I, I yeah, I think that's just where I think is your idea of, you know, the the American dream kind of shifting away from this picture perfect 2.5 kids of you know, heterosexual marriage <laughs> and, you know, quote unquote, stable job. It's like, well, that kind of doesn't really exist for a lot of people <laughs> because I, I, I would argue, and, you know, obviously I'm not as well versed in it, but I would argue that for a lot of people being a teacher doesn't provide, it can't provide that because the income is not enough. And so then it's like, and that, that on top of, we don't have the ability, like a lot of coach, a lot of teachers wouldn't have the ability to even feel good necessarily that they're doing their job well because they don't have the resources around adequate leadership coaching and things like that. So now you're asking me to do a job. I feel a little bit insecure and nervous about doing it and you're not paying me enough. <laughs> yeah, I know I can be. I know I can be a Starbucks barista confidently and I'm getting paid more. Yes. Do I you feel sad? <laughs> exactly. Do I feel sad that I am not going to potentially be working with kids, which I might really love and be passionate about? Yeah. But also, I got to feed my own kids. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, there's also another piece to it, too. I think, yeah, national trend showing that our, our, that our children are not reading and writing. Yeah. No, this, at the same rate as other kids in other countries, too. Mm-hmm. So what happens is what happens. We, there's a frenzy. It's like, oh, my God, we got to get our kids to read and write. Or you got to do better math. Right. And so now people are buying all these different curriculums. And then every other year, teachers have to learn a new system. And mm-hmm. so again, the exhaustion is just in the cycle. It's just, you know, it's just like, again, I became a teacher because I wanted to be creative in the classroom. I wanted mm-hmm. to be able to, you know, have kids go outside and pick leaves and come in and use a micro, you know, and like put it under a microscope. And, you know, but no, there's a script. No, there's, mm-hmm. you can't bring a microscope in or no, you can't. Now it's like, you know, getting on the laptop, but it's just, there's a, a lack of creativity too. And if you don't have that, it's like, then why do it? You know, if, mm-hmm. if anyone could just re- read off a script, then why do it? The The idea of building relationships, deep lasting relationships, unfortunately is, is, is being lost, but the good ones know that relationships matter. Mm-hmm. And that's what they thrive off of. Mm-hmm. This is great. I could, there's, I, I got all kinds of thoughts swirling <laughs> through my head, but we'll never get uh, past this. I'll end it here and let Rachel move on to a question I know she was wanting to get to, but I'll end it here by saying, I firmly believe a, a big part of the problem is education is not valued in America the way it should be. Yeah. In education, to Rachel's point, I, I do think there's a shift in in our culture now and society to where it's okay to say out loud, work isn't the end all be all for mm-hmm. me. And I don't want to get a big 
deep ass debt from college <laughs> to try to do this. Yeah, maybe I'll do this. Uh, my nephew, he's doing He's a real smart young dude, right? All kinds of options for him. Very smart, smart kid. He's taking a six month welding thing where they're going to, ha they have a 99.9% .9 job placement. He goes and does it six months and then he continues his apprenticeship. Welders make pretty good money. He doesn't have the, the debt. He gets to, you know, he can always shift gear from there. So I, I think that's a great change. I actually have sort of capitalized it on myself, took an early retirement and sort of chased my own dream because finances aren't an issue and I'm looking at it differently. However, I will say this to me, and I know I'm one of those weird nerds, that's not ultimately what education yeah. is about, though, just to get you. A, it's to be a better human. It's yeah. to be a better citizen. It's yeah. to be a better mm -hmm. member of the world. And I know we got probably listeners rolling their eyes right now <laughs> when I say things like that. But ultimately, that's what education is about. And to your point, Natalie, when you take that creativity away from the people that are help facilitating that education mm -hmm. and turning them into nothing but, in a sense, just glorified computers because they're mm -hmm. just they're just what you know regurgitating information they've been told to regurgitate because it all comes down to national tests and all that kind of stuff and everything to me i'll get off my my box here in a second <laughs> right now actually but that's 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 it education is not valued in america is the way it should be, in my opinion, and not value what it really adds value to people. That's another thing. Everybody's knocking the humanities now, right? Oh, yeah. Because, oh, well, the humanities aren't going to help you get that high paying computer programmer job or, you know, coder job. Well, first of all, not everybody can be a damn coder, right? <laughs> they talk about like that. That's the only jobs out there. Second of all, humanities is what makes us be able to cooperate and collaborate and understand other people out there, especially people that are less like us, right? Mm -hmm. It's easier when I'm around people that have my same, uh, same upbringing, my same mm -hmm. socioeconomic background, same color, same, same gender, it gets easier and easier. The humanities teach us skills to be able to understand and empathize with people that are less like us. And the further we get off that spectrum of who we are, the more we need that kind of education and that kind of knowledge. Preach the word. I, I know. Yeah. I, yeah. I could just turn this into one of our bonus <laughs> rant episodes. But Rachel, take it from here. I probably will edit some of that out. Yeah. I know I got on one of my things, but yeah, that's it's okay. Right. It's good for us that's to hear. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, so, so last question for me, Natalie and I, we've been talking about this idea a little bit without explicitly naming it. Um, but the idea of like imposter syndrome, which, you know, most people are listening probably knows what that is, but I think essentially the idea of you're doing something, but you feel like, should I be, should I be doing this? I don't feel like I have the skills to do this. And I know this is something that women in the workplace deal with, all of the time. And men, men do too. But again, I think women deal with it so much more because we're not primed to ex to believe that we can do the <laughs> leadership things. It's, it's so funny, um, slight tangent here, but my sister actually, another shout out for her, she is um, thinking about potentially taking a leadership position in her organization or at least applying for it. And Ooh. 
she is I, like she keeps going back and forth. She's like, I don't know if I can do it. And I'm like, yeah, I think you can do it. And she's like, OK, you know, and so it's just like I can hear the and she's, you know, for people who don't know, she's she became a lawyer when she was 21 years old and has been practicing for like five years. Yeah, they're all and- ridiculously <laughs> smart in that and Rachel's side of the family. It just makes me sick. Right? Go ahead, um, Rachel. But anyway, so she's 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 dealt she's dealt with imposter syndrome her whole life because A, she's a female lawyer, and B, she's really young. And you know, I'm a woman in the military. Like, my goodness, the imposter syndrome, even even in the field I work in, which is medical, it's still, you know, it's still a lot. And so I think particularly because me and my sister are white women, but as a black woman, I think it's even, it's even harder, um, at least from, you know, experience or from other people that I, that I've read and listened to. I'd love to give like your perspective on what do you feel like, how do you feel like imposter syndrome impacts black women in leadership or women in leadership or black people in leadership? And just go ahead and like, just take it from any direction you want to. I mean, I can't speak for every single black person, right? I mean, I could speak to the people I've had the honor of being, you know, in the same circles with. I can speak to the clients that I've had that this has become the like the topic that we talk about for multiple sessions. Um, I can speak of I can speak of it um as I sit in it right now, right? Like when Stuart said, you know, and I actually was just joking. I'm like, I should be in your podcast. And he's like, yes. And I'm like, oh, shit. No, wait. <laughs> uh, that's happened before. <laughs> when I think about, I'm thinking about a couple of clients. I have one right now that's, that's actually going through it. And, you know, she's a young, she's a young principal. It took her a while to become a principal. She did not make it past the first two interviews. Um, and when we when we when we dug deep into like what what's going on in these interviews that you can't you know that you can't get past this 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 piece, and finally like maybe like the fifth session she says I don't know if I deserve to be there, and I was just like, whoa like you know like where where is that coming from, you know I don't know if I deserve to be there I don't know if I can do the work I don't. And I'm like, okay, great. If you don't know those things, then why are you applying for this job? Like, why do you, why are you, you know, why are you putting yourself through this? And it's because it's the want versus that inner voice that kind of keeps knocking you down, right? Like you're, you're kind of like the imposter syndrome. I feel like it, it's this, um, it's like the, the, the two different personalities on your shoulder, the one that you have one cheering you on and the other one that's saying, what are you talking about? You can't do that. Like get, put, get, get in your own place kind of thing, or, you know, get real with yourself. But I think, you know, the imposter syndrome can be dealt with if you if you have people who believe in you, if you have people who constantly remind you of your gifts and remind you of your talents and also not just tell you, but like show you, like say, look, look, look what you just did. Look what you just said. Look at that thing that you did that created this crazy change. You did that. You know, no one else did that. You did that. And I think you know, yes, yeah, society is changing, we're becoming a lot more progressive, and there are a lot more seats at the table for people of color, you know, to be able to be their authentic selves. But there are still things that we have to do in order to fit in so we can be seen and and have an entry point in order to to rise in leadership, right? I mean, just recently, Black women started wearing their hair natural, like my hair is natural. Curly. Find me five years ago, my hair was straight. <laughs> <laughs> right. I was running, you know, I had straight hair and, you know, again, trying to quote unquote fit in so you can be seen and you can kind of be part of the mold in a piece. Mm-hmm. Right. 
And then also trying to figure out like, you know, when I speak, like w- my voice, what, what message does it carry? Um, what, what is it saying? Is it worth being heard? Right. Like, and, and so a lot of the times, like with the, what I'm learning is that we allow ourselves to get in our own way. And in reality, if you have something to say, like Stuart was saying earlier, like, you know, a lot of leaders kind of have that thing or they have an it. If somebody says, to you, you know, you have that it and you believe it, you got to I think you have to you have to be able to find a way to kind of live in it so you can figure out how to bring it out. Because if not, it could be something that something that dies in you and you'll never realize you know, it's going to be really late when you realize, damn, I should have done that thing or I should have. And the reason why I think I'm loving this leadership coaching piece now is because I'm realizing there's a piece of me that, that maybe always had it in me to like go off on my own a little bit and get clients. And I would have never been, been able to do that, I think, if I wasn't listening to other people's stories. So like, you know, I think a gift as a coach is as your clients are discovering themselves you're discovering yourself, right? Like you're oh, kind of yeah, going, yeah. right? You're like, wait a minute, that's me. Like she's talking about me, mm-hmm. right? Like, and so, you know, when that person gives themselves homework and they go out and take a risk, I'm like, I'm going to take that risk too. <laughs> like I'm going to go out there and I'm going to try that thing. Like I'm going to go out there and get my LLC and I'm going to get that first client. Yeah. So I think the imposter syndrome can be dealt. I think we all have it a little bit. Mm-hmm. I think people of color might have it more because of just like, you know, placement in society, biases and. And lack of representation. Oh, if you don't, but yeah, lack. I think lack of representation. Yes. And we is a carry all that. Yeah, right. and we carry all that. And I think there's a pressure too. Like, you know, if you're the only black person in a room, you're like, holy <laughs> shit, I want to say something. It has to be the smartest thing or I have to, I'm representing for not just myself, but for every other black person who's going to speak. Mm-hmm. In the so we carry a lot of pressure. And the truth is, Although that's what society has put on our shoulders, we don't have to carry that. Mm-hmm. You know, we really should be able to walk into a space and walk into that space as yourself mm-hmm. and not as yourself and every other mm-hmm. black person, right? And I think, you know, yeah, white people don't have to do that, right? No, Especially never. white men, right? <laughs> yeah. I don't have to worry about everybody's like, oh, he's representing the entire white race right now. You yeah, know, we'll never hire, we'll never hire another tall white man after Stuart like, messes up. This is That's how they're all, right. they're all like this. <laughs> yeah, but there are moments you're like, oh my God, I screwed up for every black person. <laughs> you know? um, but no, I mean, we have, you know, there, there's pressures that we carry because of, you know, just societal biases and the way people think or and then there's also this thing too is like you know being a black person that you know maybe presents as african-american but identifies as west west indian or mm-hmm. is the Caribbean, you know so you know trying to figure out what that means in, in the room and sort of the whole piece about like identity like you know you have we, we have different identities although we present as people of color still so there's just a lot of layers when it comes to leadership, the imposter syndrome, moving up in leadership. The number one question I think we have to ask ourselves when it's time for that move is, do I deserve this? And you have to be able to look in the mirror and say, yes, I deserve this. And then I think when you can say yes, a lot of pressure kind of dissipates and you're able to move into that space even though you'll still have a lot of things that will get in the way or, you know, hold you back, but knowing that you deserve to be in that space, it also means that you'll be able to work through it. And that's, and I think that's the beauty 
but it's really just kind of like shutting that voice down. It's just like, no, you know, I just, you know, like I deserve to be here. I can, I can own this space. I can own this room. And, you know, we talked about this too, Rachel and Stuart, like the whole piece of like how the imposter syndrome can also impact your leadership presence. Because if you're, if somebody is telling you, or if your inner voice is telling you, you know, you, you, you're not supposed to be here or don't say anything that's going to make you look bad or creating these limited beliefs about yourself, a lot happens to like your shoulder, your eye contact, the level of your voice, the amount of information that you share or don't share, um, you know, the, the relationships that you build, trust that you have in your teammates and your colleagues and in your boss. And all those things are impacted by the imposter syndrome. But leadership presence, I think, is especially if you're if you have to be present at a table or if you have to lead a space, especially as, you know, as a school leader, if you, when you walk in that room, it's not just like what you look like and what you sound like, but it's what you make people feel like, right? When you walk into that space. And if the imposter syndrome is there, it's masking all that magic that can be in the space. Instead, it's this, it's, it's worry, it's lack of confidence and people, feed, we're humans. Like we're at, like, we feed off that. Oh, this principal ain't going to last because she can't mm-hmm. even me in the eye she can't even tell that parent to go home you know like this one's not gonna last you know we can take over the school but if you walk into a space and you know your why and you're rooted in why you're there and what you're what you're there to do it's a different level of energy that that takes up the space like you have to be able to take the space up in a way that people want to be in it with you and you have to be able to take it in a way that when it's time to kind of say hey, team, we need to go a different direction. You could do it with a level of confidence and a level of presence. I mean, I also think about some of my coaches, you know, who are Black women. Sometimes we talk about, you know, the the question will come up, well, why didn't you say something? Or what happened that caused you not to do something? And then we go to this place where, well, I don't want to be the angry angry Black woman. I don't want to be- I can imagine. I can imagine that those thoughts go through your head, right? Yeah. 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 So again, so that again, that that limits their scope and what they can and cannot do or what they would like to do, because, again, they want to be able to fit a brand or fit a certain, you know, a certain mold to ensure that they're accepted, not just by, you know, their community, but also by their leadership. Yeah, because yeah, I, I was I was curious, because as we're talking, I'm thinking of this idea of like there's like and I'm sure this has been studied as well before, but the interplay between actual discrimination and imposter syndrome (laughs) and like at what point is it like the actual discrimination black women and women face in leadership roles versus that you know that feeding into this imposter syndrome of well I don't deserve it because otherwise I would have and it's like so I think that's an interesting that's an interesting interplay as well, because, yeah, it, it is almost like a, in some cases, you're not going to say it. You're not going to say the thing you feel like you should say because you're afraid of the repercussions. <laughs> if you are working in a place that is not, you know, that is discriminatory, whether that's up to the legal definition of discrimination or not, because God knows there's a lot of there's a lot of discrimination that happens that is, you know, subclinical <laughs> or just um, you you get easily stereotyped, even if you yeah. don't want to go out and call it discrimination. You know, sure, sure. we all have a stereotype, right? I come from the South. Uh, you know, they're, they're stereotypes. correct? Mm-hmm. So I can get to a lesser degree of watching watching not to fall into uh into the trap of doing something that people go oh yep there you go we 
look, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. She was nice for uh, for forty five days straight, but you see now, deep down, <laughs> Natalie's an angry black woman, right? <laughs> because right. whereas if I did it again, I whereas I did it, it would just I'm passion for you, Stuart. I'm passion <laughs> yeah, for yeah, me, exactly, yeah. exactly. We are running out of time. This has been a lot of fun. But before we do wrap it up, Natalie, I do want to give you a chance to pass anything you want on to our listeners that you think they would find valuable, could take forward with them. Well, first of all, this was so much fun. I can't believe the time has already passed. And I would love to do this again. I'm putting myself out there again. Uh, there we go. There we go. You think you would have learned saying that to me. I don't know why you said that. <laughs> I, I will tell you this. I have had people, a lot of people, especially now that our, our rankings have really gone up in the last six months. I have had a lot of people say, oh, I'd like to be on your show. And I just usually act like I didn't hear them or I say, oh, okay. <laughs> so, but I immediately, when we started, I probably just because you were listening to me ramble on so patiently as my coach, but uh, I, I immediately like, I like this person. I want to have her on the show. And I, she's got some of the things I heard you said. I said, you know, she'll be a good guest. So, you know, if you hadn't volunteered, I might've asked you anyway. So Rachel okay. knows I'm always looking out for. It's true. It's true. <laughs> All right. There you go. But no, I mean, I really do not, I really don't have much to say for closing other than, you know, I appreciate the conversation. I love that we're able to put out there the idea that it's important to continue having this conversation around the value of education. And, you know, it's a great kitchen table conversation to have, I think, with family and friends to try to figure out what are we going to do in this state? You know, what are we going to do um, to ensure that that we still have a level of respect for it, even though it made the path may look different, right? I love, you know, the space to be able to talk about just the idea that principals, you know, leaders in education should be or should have the level of autonomy that other CEOs have. I think that's super important. And just the idea of coaching folks in a way that is not demeaning or condescending, right? But in a way that is empowering, that says, we, we know you have the answer inside of you. You just need a little bit of time to figure it out. Or coaching that says, your voice matters. Let's get it out there kind of piece. And when you hear yourself speak, what are you hearing about yourself? What are you learning about yourself? And how is this learning going to impact how you lead tomorrow? You know, I think the more leaders we can get into executive coaching, especially education leaders, I think the further we'll go as a country and, and we'll actually be able to solve some of the problems that we're trying to solve when we look at the data. It's more than the reading and math scores. It's really about who is at the top and who's doing mm -hmm. the work and who's passionate about the work and who actually really wants to see the work done the right way. But yes, I mean... I just had a great time and, you know, and if ever you need another guest or you want to, you know, talk to another black woman about something, <laughs> I'm around. <laughs> you are not our token, Natalie. You are not our token. <laughs> We we have we have plenty of black guests. <laughs> there you go, there you go. No, but seriously, this was uh, an incredible treat, and yeah, and I just look forward for the conversation to continue. And I can't wait for your next your next episode. I actually enjoy listening to them. So. Oh, thank you, thank mm -hmm. you very much, and thank you for joining us today. This was a fantastic conversation, and. Listeners, as you know, any links to Natalie that she wants me to put in the show notes, I will put in there. I definitely will put a link to the book 
that Natalie uh, contributed to, which was called Let's Get Better Faster. Any books that come in here, I like to get the links to them. And Natalie, again, uh, I want to basically parrot everything you said. We very much enjoyed mm -hmm. this, and I'll let Rachel say what she has to say. But uh, leadership and education, as I've said on this podcast many times, are my two passions, if you would. So that that is why once I found out when we were talking – that you had been a principal and now you were a leadership coach for educators and hearing you talk, I said, I got to have her on my show because uh, she checks two of the big boxes for us. <laughs> but thank you, Natalie. We, I very much enjoyed this. And Rachel. My email out there. Cause if anybody wants some consulting or any support in education, coaching, executive coaching, please reach out. I'd love to have that conversation. I will have that in the show yeah. notes for sure. Yeah. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, yeah, this great conversation right at the end. My mom was a teacher for a few years before she had me, and then she became a stay-at-home mom. So teaching is also very near and dear to my heart. And then, yeah, I, I love I love talking to women who are in leadership roles. It is more, more and more common, but it's still, you know, it's still a little, a little rarity occasionally. Um, so, yeah, I, I really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks for coming on. Absolutely. All right. And everyone else, we will see you next time. Bye, everybody. Hello everyone, this is Rachel. After some nudging by several of us who he has mentored and coached throughout the years, beginning in March 2023, my co-host Stuart is resuming his leadership coaching consultations via virtual video sessions. What this means is that you now have the opportunity to benefit from the same knowledge and experience that has made such an impact on many managers and leaders throughout the years, including myself. I cannot overstate how influential Stuart's coaching and mentorship has been for me as a leader, and perhaps the most significant element he brings to his consultations is his ability to get you to think through the process of managing and leading so that instead of focusing on isolated problems and occurrences, you learn how to think and act as a leader all of the time. So if you think you could benefit from Stuart's coaching, and I think that virtually any leader can, contact him via the email address in the description section of this episode. But don't put it off because his calendar is already filling up. I promise you, you will not regret it.